Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. I am naturally indebted to and the Oscar goes to Hello and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen. And that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy! Welcome to the show! Yay, we're back! This is episode three, in which we will discuss the third Best Picture winner, All Quiet on the Western Front. A war film. (laughs) <laughs> what are you laughing about a war film it is it's very very different from the broadway melody if you recall our last episode that is quite true <laughs> <laughs> probably two of the most different pictures to win back to back yeah which we will talk about this as we get into the episode but i think it's a big part of why this film took the cake hmm, interesting interesting but more to come on that as we start off the show every week, we will discuss Penny News. <laughs> Penny News, yeah. Penny is our sweet, sweet pup. You can find her on Instagram, at Penny Faniff. Um, She is a little cavalier, King Charles Spaniel, tricolor. Um, this week, Penny is depressed. Very. She has had an exhausting week because we are both finally starting to do things again. We're going out Thanks, COVID. Yeah, we are not home 24-7. We're going out to work. We're going out to see friends and do hikes and that kind of thing. And so because of that, Penny has spent a significant amount of time alone or with just one of us, which has made her very, very deeply depressed. Well, and for Penny, COVID was amazing. Oh, it was the best time of her life. Yay. Mom and dad are home forever. She also does so much better when she has the same schedule every single day. And now that we're kind of doing things outside of the house, she doesn't have her regular schedule, which I think disorients her and then people are missing and who knows if they'll ever come back again. Well, and when you're doing gig work in film, like you're on a different set all the time, week to week, and like our schedules are never regular. Yeah, and I find that you and I both, when we are out we're out for very long periods of time it's like a 12 hour day right eight to 12 hours usually right so poor penny poor penny but she gets so 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 happy and excited when one of us gets home super hyped we're gonna keep trying to make her happy she's sitting here with us so this is one of the good times yes sleeping contentedly <laughs> not depressedly so let's get into it yeah so tell me about all quiet on the western front this is a little bit of a shorter recap I know sometimes my recaps are a little bit lengthy. It's like Russian roulette with you. I know. You just don't know. (laughs) Yep. You never know what you're going to get. All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, Germany is preparing for World War I. A group of boys, led by Paul Balmer, sit in a classroom and are emboldened by their teacher to go to war for the Kaiser. Once they're on the battlefield with 2nd Company, they are surprised and dismayed at how different and horrifying the war actually is. We see scenes of the young men in their bunkers, in the trenches, being shot down as one by one, they all die. There's a brief interlude in the madness as three remaining boys cross the river to France for a quick love fest. (laughs) Paul gets leave after an injury and visits his hometown, only to be met with praise. He discovers no one from home really understands how horrible the war really is. His former teacher is still leading more young men to their deaths. He goes back to the front, hoping he can help lead the new recruits. In the last moments of the film, Paul reaches out slowly for a butterfly, trying to grasp that unattainable beauty the world has been bereft of during the war. But he is shot by a sniper, never to reach it. Woof. Depressing. This was a very intense film. Extremely. And as uh, you may remember from last week, it is a pre-code film. Right. Meaning that everything that was in it was allowed to be shown at the time because there was no censorship. Yeah. Um, It feels very modern in its violence. It really does. I was completely shocked at the amount of violence and like the graphic nature of the movie. There was one point where I won't like say exactly what happens because, you know, I don't know if you want to watch it or not. But 
one of the guys gets very brutally maimed and I jumped in my seat and I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this. Why are they allowed to do well, this? And you literally turned to me and you said, how are they allowed to show this? I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I really couldn't. And, and I said, remember, pre-code. Yeah, man. Well, I'm like, I don't love violent stuff. Well, and you don't really get violence like this in movies again until the 60s. Oh, no. Yeah. It's a long time before you see stuff like this again. Um, I am generally not interested in watching violent films, graphic films, war films, that kind of thing. But this is one of the few that I feel the violence in it really was important to the film Um, and in communicating Mm -hmm. the message of the film. And without it, if there had been that censorship, I don't think it would have been effective. I I don't think it would have been made, frankly. Like, yeah, yeah. There's a lot, I mean, during the 30s and 40s and 50s, when apparently America is all happy and go lucky, according to film, those films are not getting made. Like, they're not getting written, they're not getting produced because, like, they're not really allowed to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, as you see in this film, there was so much tragedy. There was so much deep, dark tragedy around the First World War. Uh, and then later on, it's like right as this film comes out, the Great Depression begins. And because of that darkness, I don't think people wanted to watch that on the screen. Yeah. Well, let's get into it, shall we? There's a lot to talk about the film. I've got a lot of thoughts about just my experience watching it. But I want to talk about the ceremony and the year and all that stuff. Perfect. So this is the third Academy Awards, which were held on November 5th, 1930. But uh, as we refer to this year, we refer to it as the 1931 Academy Awards, just because there was uh, two ceremonies in the year 1930. If you were listening last week, um, they had their ceremony for the previous year, the second Academy Awards in April. And this one was held only seven months later in November. So films for this particular ceremony had to have been released between August 1st, 1929 and July 31st, 1930 in order to be eligible, which were the same dates that the previous ceremony had. But they realized last time that having such a long time to wait from July all the way to April for an awards ceremony was way too long. It lost the buzz. The movies lost popularity. It didn't help the studios as much as they wanted it to. So for this year, they moved the awards to November. And this is going to continue to be adjusted as we go forward until they finally settle on the sweet spot of like a regular calendar year of eligibility and uh, having the awards in the early spring, late winter. Um, So this is the very first ceremony to ever be filmed. And it wasn't broadcast anywhere, but it was filmed, I'm guessing, for archival purposes. Um, It's kind of unclear as to why they decided to film it, like what that was for, if it was going to be given to anyone or done anything with. And they didn't end up filming the whole event, um, but they did film some of the most important awards. They filmed the moment where Universal Pictures founder and president Carl Lemley received the Best Picture Award for All Quiet on the Western Front from Louis B. Mayer of MGM. Uh, the founder of the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences. They got the moment where Norma Shear wins Best Actress and screenwriter Frances Marion wins Best Writing for The Big House. And you can watch that on YouTube if you want. It's so cute. They're all so little and so happy and it's so old timey. It's adorable. So this year, uh, the voting rules did change a little bit. Um, In the first two years of the Academy Awards, Films were voted on by a board of judges selected by the Academy to nominate and decide the awards. This year, it opened up voting to the entire Academy. So anyone who is a member was a participant in voting, which is the way that they do it now. So this is the first year they decided to do that. They um, felt that it was time to include people from all different perspectives, all different uh, studios, uh, and all different professions to make those final assessments. And it also kind of helped incentivize keeping membership equal in different departments um, so that people were kind of voting fairly. It also helps to have more voting members than only 36. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, and as we'll go through this, every year there's always the problem of perspective. You know, these things are so subjective and they're reliant on the members of the Academy. And especially in these first years, the members of the Academy were elite white wealthy people. And so that's the perspective they're coming to the voting system with. Um, And as membership diversifies, it 
becomes easier, I think, for those voices to be heard and amplified. But we're still in the 20s, well, 30s. So we'll get to that later. This particular year, Academy members were charged a fee of $10 to attend, uh, which ended up being really successful and paying, helping pay for the event. Uh, and so it, like the general public could come? Yes. Oh, cool. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, Academy members, instead of like being invited to the banquet to have a dinner, they paid a ticket fee to go to the event. Hmm. Uh, and it sold out. It was really successful. Um, so that kind of became the pattern. And at this ceremony, Thomas Edison and George Eastman were both given honorary Academy memberships for their pioneering in the film medium. Uh, and Edison, Thomas Edison, was not able to attend the event, but he did send a film that was shown after the banquet. Um, so you said they cost ten dollars. That yeah. would be one hundred and fifty-seven dollars now. Oh, okay, nice. Like going a, to a, yeah, a Broadway a show or, or something or a concert. Yeah, exactly. And if you watch the little clip of the ceremony, there is a little bit of showmanship to it, which is kind of like the start of that as well. Mm-hmm. Since they weren't serving dinner, they got to entertain them somehow. Yeah, <laughs> they are entertainers after all. Ah, uh, yes. Let's talk about the winners for this year. So this year, there were six nominations for the film The Love Parade, four nominations for All Quiet on the Western Front, The Big House, and The Divorcee. Strangely enough, uh, The Love Parade did not end up winning anything, even though it had the most nominations. Um, All Quiet on the Western Front wins the Best Picture Award, as we know, and director Lewis Milestone wins Best Director for All Quiet on the Western Front. And of course, this is only the third year they've done this, but this is the first time that both Best Picture and Best Director go hand in hand, which sets a precedent for a lot of future films. This is extremely common that they would win for both of those awards. And it's a kind of a strange occurrence when it doesn't happen. George Arliss won for Disraeli uh, as Benjamin Disraeli, which was based on a play. And he was one of the first actors to have performed the stage play and played this role so well and then be cast in the film version of it playing the same role um and the academy just thought that was amazing amazing pretty interesting yeah well and i think that's so cool It, it obviously was a role that would have resonated well with him and that he just was very strong at um and a really cool integration of the two mediums. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also was nominated twice for Best Actor. Uh, so for his role in Disraeli as Benjamin Disraeli and also for his role in The Green Goddess as the Raja. Hmm. Best Actress goes to Norma Shearer for The Divorcee as Jerry Martin. She also was nominated twice, uh, additionally for Their Own Desire as Lucia. Uh, Best Writing goes to the film Big House by Frances Marion who is considered to be one of the matriarchs of screenwriting. She is, she's a really awesome story. And she is the first person in general to win two best writing awards for the Academy Awards. Mm, Good for her. Yeah. So that's pretty awesome for her and for, you know, the women of the Academy. (laughs) Um, Best sound goes to the big house, uh, Douglas Shearer. This is the first um, time that siblings both win uh, an Academy Award. Douglas Shearer and Norma Shearer were siblings. Yes, Best Actress and Best Sound. Best Art Direction goes to King of Jazz. Uh, uh, The award goes to Herman Rossi. And then Best Cinematography goes to With Bird at the South Pole, which I was wondering why All Quiet on the Western Front didn't win Best Cinematography because there's some amazing, amazing shots in it. Mm -hmm. But uh, With Bird at the South Pole was filmed in Antarctica. And so they were able to take film equipment and record stuff that hadn't been seen before, which obviously is amazing and really exciting. So I guess I understand. Yeah. Oh, well. What can you do? Is that like a documentary? I'm not totally sure. I I couldn't quite tell and I haven't watched it. So it's probably like part. It's what it seems like is part documentary, part like story. Well, if you're interested, there's some homework for you. Yeah. Um, So All Quiet on the Western Front. There's some really amazing advances in this film in terms of storytelling um, that hadn't been present before. And as we talk about why this film won the best picture, as opposed to something like The Love Parade, for those of you who don't know, The Love Parade is a big, flashy musical, lots of numbers, lots of great costumes, great sets, very visually stunning, especially for the time. But the Broadway Melody won the last one. And this year, there's a notable change in tone and in acting style. All Quiet on the Western Front is the first film to really utilize a natural style of acting 
that hadn't really been seen before, which I think is why it hits so hard and the gravitas is so intense because the people in the film are real people. They're not the kind of wide gesturing, big eyed people that were in the silent films. These are real people speaking in real natural ways. Comparing it to Wings, which right. is the same subject matter. It's yeah. like crazy the difference between the two films. Mm -hmm. It also, to me at least, the film feels the way that a tragedy is on stage where it starts out seeming okay and just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse all the way to the end, which hadn't become popular in film yet. Most films were either fun or exploring family stuff. There wasn't anything with the scope of what they accomplished here. Mm -hmm. um, and especially because of all of the war scenes, the graphic violence, the sweeping sets and all this kinds of stuff. It's such a big film in a way that's really different than the big films like the Broadway Melody or even Wings that is so happy and go lucky and a little bit unattainable for the average person. This one really hits home. It's very nuanced and the performances are subtle. The tone of speaking is very common. The guys in it are like guys that you would have been friends with. Um, so I can see how it would just really be impactful. I found this quote from... David Gerald from Medium, written this year, uh, January 22nd, 2019. And they wrote, talking movies were still in their infancy. Directors who had learned a visual vocabulary were now having to learn how to incorporate dialogue, music, and sound effects. Writers were learning how to create credible dialogue, and actors were struggling with a major shift in their craft, how to project their characters in a whole new way. The shift from silent film to sound was transformative, but director Lewis Milestone managed to integrate the sound and picture as a truly immersive experience. Uh, the picture is timeless. Nearly a century later, it is still an intensely riveting experience. All Quiet on the Western Front was not only a great picture on its own merits, it also set the standard for future epics, which I would highly agree with. Yeah. It was a very sweeping film in that sense. Yeah, so that's all I have to say about this particular yeah, there's not a whole lot going on in terms of there weren't any major shifts in the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences. But uh, yeah, it's a very impactful film to me. And I would love to hear a lot about the cultural stuff because I feel like that's the more interesting part of this episode. And we'll get back to that right after the break. back hooray all right let's get into some of the making of this film and other reasons why it was culturally relevant and significant and one so just some random facts about this film to get us started uh the budget for this was 1.2 million so we're back to a In big their time yes so okay. we're back to a big budget film uh which would be about 18 million today which makes sense because it's a big war epic action adventure not so much adventure but they think it's going to be an adventure yeah well their teacher does um originally in the film paul's mother was played by zazu pitts um who is like a really famous comedy actress with a name like zazu you gotta be a comedian <laughs> yeah um but test audiences didn't like her like Aww. As soon as they started seeing her on screen, they started laughing because they just associated her with comedy. <laughs> Imagine being so funny that people just see you and they're like, <laughs> So uh, she was playing Paul's mother and Aww. they had to just reshoot all of her scenes with Beryl Mercer, who is in the film then. Her dramatic breakout. Yeah. Aww. So they refilmed all of those scenes with the mother. Um, wow. Like only a couple weeks before the film was released, which is pretty crazy. One very cool thing about this film, uh, Lewis Milestone, the director, wanted to have people who actually served in the war for Germany, since all of the people in the film are German, um, come to set and help consult on the film. Oh, wow. Um, and there were so many German army vets living in L.A. at the time for some reason that um, they made up the majority of the extras in the film. Oh, wow. What a crazy experience. Yeah. So they played most of the soldiers, most of the officers. Um, they helped in the drill scenes and making the movie accurate. In the scene where they're laying all of the cable, the 
guy who was leading that scene as the officer, that is ex- exactly what he did in the war. Like mm. he would lay cable around in the trenches, um, like the communication wires. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had him come to set that day and lead the whole scene. He basically directed that scene hmm. um, and did it with them in the film. So very cool that they were able to do stuff like that. Um, and for some reason, there just happened to be a bunch of German army vets. I'm not really sure why there were so many at the time in L.A., but hmm. yeah. they put out a big notice, uh, the studio did, on behalf of the director, asking for them to come down to the studio and that they would get to take part in telling the, their story, basically. Oh, my gosh. That's really beautiful. Um, so it's based on a book. I won't try to say the title in German because I will butcher it. <laughs> Um, but it translates exactly to nothing new in the West, which is, was basically another way of saying all quiet on the Western front. Yeah. Like, Honestly, that's a more tragic version of the title. Well, and that is a phrase that they used very commonly during the war Okay. by the German sh- soldiers. Gotcha. Um, that is just was part of their vernacular of saying that like nothing new was happening on the Western front. Like mm-hmm. right now the front is okay. It's being held, you know. That's what it means, basically. The book was written by Eric Maria Remarque. He was a German man. His middle name was Paul. So that's where the character of Paul gets his name. Um, He did serve in the second company on the Western Front during the war. So it can be concluded that it's possible many of these people were based off of friends of his or many of the things that happened could have happened. He wasn't very specific on whether it was like true fact or that it, he was just basically writing all his experiences of the war essentially the book was an instant and massive success for him um it was a major international success as well launching his career as a writer uh, carl lemley of universal acquired the rights to the book like less than a year after the book was published mm-hmm. um the book was already popular in the states and people were wanting to make it It just goes to show how popular it was getting. By the end of the 30s, the book had already been translated into 22 different languages from German. Oh, wow. So it was being read all over the place, especially because it was essentially like a true account of the war from a German perspective. Yeah, well, it's a look inside of what was going on inside of the German people and their ideology and their opinions about the war outside of the people in power. Which I'm curious about. Well, and it started a major trend, which is still active today, of uh, war veterans writing war stories. Mm. Very common still. Eric Maria Remarque, he changed his name to uh, Maria, his middle name, after his mother. After she died, she died pretty quickly after the war. And it was too tragic for him, like all of it put together, the war oh. and his mother dying. Um, so he wrote the book and then erased Paul from his own name hmm. and then took on his mother's name, Maria, as his new middle name. Hmm. Just another interesting thing about him, because I think it all goes into this story of this film. Um, he changed his spelling of his last name. Um, so Remark in German would be R-E-M-A-R-K. But he changed it to the French spelling, which would be R-E-M-A-R-Q-U-E, oh. which um, Germany did not like. Yeah, they want him to be their own. Right. So the book and film uh, were both banned in Germany pretty quickly after they were both released um, into the mid-30s as the Nazi regime was coming into power. Yeah. Um Both the book and the film were banned. Um, He eventually lost his German citizenship. Um, He did have a house in Switzerland, but moved to America in the 40s, mostly because of the war in Europe. Mm. So then also another German person who had a lot of influence on this film is producer Carl Lemley. He was the head of Universal. He founded and owned Universal until 1934. Um, He got his start by opening one of the first motion picture theaters in Chicago. He wanted to bust Thomas Edison's monopoly that was forming uh, around the motion pictures. He had the idea to advertise P. 
people in the movie as stars of the movie. Um, so before he did this in the early 1910s, um, people were not really advertising the actors in the movie. They were advertising that the movie was made by Thomas Edison's company. Um, that was like the grabbing point or the selling point of the film. So Carl Lemley had the idea that to bust up these big monopolies that were forming around the film industry, he would a advertise the stars that were in the film and take the focus off of the studios or the people running the monopolies and put them on the people in the film. Um, so that was his whole thing about advertising. He bought this little space and turned it into a theater for only $3,600. And from that and that idea created Universal Pictures, which is still running today. Um, pretty amazing. Hmm. Um, as his company grew, he moved it to New York from Chicago and Fort Lee, New Jersey, where Hollywood sort of started and opened a studio. Um, and after a few successful films, he got a bunch of the other studios who were there at the time, um, who were run by friends of his, to all group their studios together and become Universal. And that is how Universal was started. They remained there for a couple of years, but then they decided, as everyone was doing, to move to Hollywood because that is where the motion picture industry was going to continue. So he purchased a plot of land that was 235 acres in the middle of the valley, and they still have their studio there today, just down the road from us. Wow. So he was a German immigrant. Um, he was... Uh, a Jewish man living in Germany and immigrated to the United States in the late 1800s um, and found success there. Um, and his take on this film was that it was to create goodwill toward the people of Germany and to stop future wars from happening. Mm. Um, he was particularly moved by the story, the book, um, particularly that it was all about German people yeah. during the war. Um, it's really interesting because I'll get into it, but German Americans at the time were very popular, very well liked and loved, very like huge part of American culture. Um, and it's really a shame because World War One, then the fact that Germany was kind of leading the charge against the rest of the world, um, really turned America against German people. Yeah, German people are going to be the number one enemy until the Russians later on. Right, which is interesting then that the movie, the movie does a really good job and it, it was their intent to portray everyone in the film as just like you and me, you know, yeah. you're watching this film and you're not thinking like, oh, all of these are German people. You would never know. Honestly, when you're watching it, it just seems like boys, which is the tragedy of it. Well, and that's the intent of the film is just to, you know, bring is more of like a unity. Like we're all yeah. in this together. We're all just people. We're all just doing our thing. I love the conversation that they're having by the river in the film where they're like, why are we fighting? Like, yeah, those people in Britain and us here in Germany and people in France, like, we're all just people. And like, why would I want to kill somebody in France over somebody in Britain? And like, they haven't offended me. Like, why would I kill them? It's a very sad scene. Well, and it's just, it's a... A bunch of guys philosophizing about why war even has to exist because they're being used as pawns and they're like starting to realize that. Yeah, once they all start to die. Yeah. One by one. Again, he also had his fingerprint all over this movie as the producer um, and as a German immigrant to America. Um, I'm sure he felt particularly moved by the movie. This movie also uh, launched Lou Aries' career. Um, this is the actor who played the lead of Paul. Mm. Um, he went on to great fame because of this film. He had only been in a couple of films before this. And uh, up to this point, he was not a contracted player for um, Universal. <laughs> um, so he got a contract from Universal because of this film. Until World War II, he lost a lot of popularity then. Um, there was a lot of controversy around him 
because he did not want to participate in the war. Hmm, I wonder why. Um, and he attributes it a lot to like his spiritualness and mm. also to making this movie. He ended up being listed as a conscientious objector. And there's also controversy around whether he signed up as a conscientious objector or like typically you're not allowed to say what position you want if you're being drafted. And people say that he was trying to say that he wanted to be a medic. Mm -hmm. And when he said that, they were like, you're not allowed to say what you want to do. So we have to then list you as a conscientious objector. I see. But they ended up making him a medic. Um, So he served as a combat medic for three and a half years during World War II, and then returned from World War II back to his career, um, but his popularity was never the same after that. Sure. So that is a little bit about the people who were kind of involved in the film. Um, The rest of my time here i'm just going to talk about like the cultural significance of this film yeah um in pre-world war one um german immigrants made up the highest immigrant population percentage of u.s inhabitants so at the time they made up 10 percent of the population of the united states Hmm. which was uh between like 90 and 100 million people at the Mm -hmm. time so they made up 9 to 10 million of those Um, Throughout the 1800s, 10% of the population of Germany immigrated to the U.S. Wow. So about 10% of their population left throughout the 1800s to come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then ended up making up 10% of the American population. And it's really crazy when you look back to see all of the things that German immigrants brought to the U.S., like attributed to what we think of as just regular American society. Listen, you don't got to tell me. I'm uh, from a long line of German immigrants yeah. who have contributed amazing technology to America. I would like to take this moment to say that my great-great-grandfather, Otto Paul Schumann, emigrated to America in 1906. He's already a machine shop that my family has worked at for almost 100 years. His contribution to technology is that he invented the calculating step between the hand calculators with like the albus abacus abacus and what we now know as the like electronic handheld uh calculator so there's like a step in between and he's responsible for that technology and it's currently at the smithsonian museum wow amazing amazing i'm very proud of my very amazing yeah this movie really hit hard for those reasons yeah here are a couple things um, that they contributed that we would say are like quintessentially American. So they created the tiered school system in America, um, starting with kindergarten. Kindergarten. Oh. Which is very clearly very a German, German word. word. They were leaders in universal education for all Americans. At the time, there was not really universal education or an education system across the board that mm. like everyone would participate in. That was them. They were leaders of fun. They helped add gymnasiums to all schools. Um, that was their <laughs> contribution as well. Um, and the creation of the modern idea of the weekend and weekend recreation. Mm. Germans just know how to have a good time, let me tell you. Rec centers, playgrounds, bowling alleys, essentially like places that were <laughs> public and private, like fun and entertainment centers. That whole idea is from German culture. I love that. I'm very proud. So some popular German figures or characters at the time were always seen as figures of fun. Mm. They were never ridiculed or like characters of shame or looked down upon they were Mm. always like characters who were leaders of like the fun times some of those that were contributed to the u.s were santa claus (laughs) um and the easter bunny (laughs) both came from germany um and the whole idea of having a christmas tree yes i do know about the is also german Um, At the time, because German immigrants made up so much of the population of the U.S., um, German was the most commonly taught second language in schools. 25% of all high school students in America were taking German in school. Hmm. 
Public schools in many major cities allowed German parents the choice of their children's education being fully in English or in German. Whoa, that's crazy. So just regular American yeah. public schools. And if they were a German immigrant family, the school would contact them and ask them if they preferred their children to learn in German or English. And this was like in Cincinnati, in Cleveland, in Pittsburgh, like major American cities at the time. Uh, but then, unfortunately, throughout the war, uh, things really changed. Um, a lot of the leaders in America really came down hard on German people, um, which is very strange because many of them were descendants of German immigrants themselves hmm. um, or had German ancestry. Well, that's the power trip for you. Yeah. So in schools... Uh, by the end of World War One, only 1% of schools were even offering German as mm -hmm. a language to study. During the war, most German names were removed from buildings, streets, towns, stores. Um, many Germans changed their own names so that they sounded more American, changed the spellings of their names so that they were not considered odd or out of place, and basically just began assimilating into what was deemed quote-unquote, regular American culture. At the time, there were many publications, newspapers would print in German and in English. Um, all of that stopped, and a lot of Germans just kind of congregated together and became more normal, according to those who were in power, so that they could sort of hide themselves. Mm. Um, and two people in particular that this can be blamed on uh, were President Woodrow Wilson um, really led an attack on what he considered, he termed hyphenated Americans. Oh, that is disgusting. All of a sudden, he was very against this idea of the hyphenated American. It's always the other, always othering, always othering. It was the whole idea which came around again um, in World War II against um, Japanese people, where it was this fear that like unfounded fear but fear that all of a sudden all of these immigrants would rise up and fight for the country that they moved from mm -hmm. this idea that we have given you a better life we've given you more than you could have ever had in your previous country um, which is all false to begin with um, but this idea that like we've given you all this and y how dare you turn around and attack us is the idea. So you have to prove your loyalty by like not saying that you're from anywhere else. Now you're American only, mm. period. Another uh, person, James W. Girard, um, had some extremely hateful things. I listened to a clip of a talk he gave in Washington, D.C., during the time. Um, he was some government official. I couldn't really find out what his title was. Um, but he it basically all boiled down to um, you have to declare yourself an American or a traitor. Um, it was extremely oh hateful. I could not believe. Like well, it's, it's very similar to the way that politicians today have othered people and um, been very hateful and just spewing vitriol at people that yeah, don't deserve it it's ridiculous um what's even more bizarre about this situation is the person who was the general of the army of the united states in world war one was a german immigrant uh general john pershing he was the leader general of all of the army operations for america and was a very proud German-American. Yeah. Even that, they couldn't, like, look past that. It was just very backwards thinking. Well, it goes to show how no one will accept nuance in these situations. Um, well, and it's all fear-driven. Yeah. It's so interesting and sad how people let fear overtake all their other emotions or sensibilities. Yeah. It's tragic when you have people in power trying to force you to deny parts of yourself. My family has preserved a lot of the letters that my great-great-grandfather had been writing when he moved to America because when World War I came around, 
his family was still in Germany. And so he and his brother exchanged letters questioning what they would do if they ran into each other in war, which like, my God, it makes my stomach drop just thinking about that. And the tragedy of what was going to happen for a German family in this instance is just crazy. And I think that Americans got this sense of fear so deep within them that they were unwilling to be sensitive to the multifaceted nature of what war is, which is why this film is a really great film for people to see so that they can sympathize and have that empathy and compassion. It was pretty eye-opening watching this, thinking that it came out at a time when there was a lot of hatred toward German people. Yeah. They were trying to make amends in a way. Like, yeah. They were trying to build unity with this film. And unfortunately, I think the code, when that came to be in the 30s, drove a lot of that away. As we'll see as we get into more films in the 30s and 40s, really whitewashed American culture in film. It really made it so that you weren't getting very many perspectives, You, which is really sad because this trend probably would have continued mm-hmm. and been able to create, I don't know, who knows what kind of pictures would have come out had that not happened. Yeah. Any other general thoughts on this film? I mean, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, I was very, very moved by this film, uh, not just because of the story, but because of the way the story was told. There's some insanely beautiful imagery in this one. Um, One of the moments that really got me was during one of the battle sequences, there's this extended lawn shot of a man with a machine gun. And it starts like far off to the left. And the camera is facing the boys that are running at the machine gun. And so it starts to the left and just pans across for a long time. Like 30 seconds. Yeah. Of just continually seeing these men fall to the ground from this machine gun as they're just flooding and running and coming up to it and just continually getting shot. It's like, it's nothing to the, it's nothing. They just, and they're dead. And I, I was unhinged. It really opened the floodgates for me. I could not believe that, that image. Mm -hmm. Um, And it stuck with me afterwards. It's, it made me just really very angry that, war is glorified in the way that it has been in American culture because it is truly nothing but tragedy. Yeah, and that um, sequence, w- they did that sequence a couple times in the film. Um, yeah. That sequence, uh, the director was really uh, applauded for, um, both for the content of showing the horrors of the film and of war, um, but also because of the, like, the shot, the nature of the shot, the dolly shot like that that mm-hmm. he did was pretty new at the time. Um, he also shot that scene silently and added all of the sound I in was gonna after. Say, that's what I think is honestly the most impactful part is you're watching this horrific violence, but the sound is, it's all surrounding. You can't escape it. It's so loud. It's constant and I, yeah, it's very, very intense. Yeah. So that technique hadn't really been done before where you would add sound in post. Okay. Um, Primarily leading up to this, it was, they thought that you could only really record sound on set and use exactly what was recorded Hmm. exactly for the take that was shot. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't record it with that take, you couldn't use it essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, But he knew that it had to have the impact of this moment and he wasn't going to be able to get that in the shot. So he was able to shoot it silently and then recreate it in post all the sounds and add it and synchronize it. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. There's a lot of really great anti-war propaganda in the film. I don't, I feel hesitant to even call it propaganda. It's just existence that makes you hate war. But one of the things that I also really loved was the sequence right at the beginning that's also replicated at the end where the shot is on the parade with all of the men mm-hmm. from the war. And they're, it's celebration. It's a good time. And then it comes into the classroom and you see the teacher going off on the students about how glorious the war is and getting them excited to join. And the boys like jump up and they're so excited to go join the war, which is then repeated 
at the end. When Paul comes back. When Paul comes back. And when you start the film, it's very happy. It's very exciting. You're excited for them to go to war. And as an American, it reminds me of films that I've seen where it's like a bunch of young boys who are so excited to enlist in World War II because um, that's like the majority of films that I've seen are about World War II. And like the pride, the honor, the glory, all these things. And to have that turned on its head at the end when Paul does come back uh, was just really impactful and just phenomenal storytelling. Yeah, agreed. Well, and it really illustrates how at home, all you see of the war is getting excited for war. Yeah. The parade of all the soldiers getting ready to leave. The everybody cheering them on. The girls you're going to get when you get back. And right. How proud your mother will be. And right. Your father finally seeing you as a man. And then that is why it was so, that moment was so horrifying for Paul. Yeah. Because he has seen war and coming back, you know, he is just shocked that that's all they know and that's all they think of as war. Mm -hmm. And they all know people who die in the war, but they're not there. They don't see them die. They don't know the horrors and the screaming and everything involved, the gore. Like I also think this film does a good job of speaking about a veteran's experience mm -hmm. because in the end when Paul does come back after having been at war he feels like he can't be at home anymore he doesn't know how to speak to his mother he doesn't know what to do with his father he doesn't know how to relate to the people around him because of the immense tragedy that he's experienced the things that he's seen haunt him he misses his friends that have died very gruesomely in front of him and he feels like a half person um, and is trying to reconcile that in a way that I feel like probably wasn't talked about a lot. Um, there weren't a lot of mental health services for veterans at that point. And I think this is a really good exploration into some of that. And really no understanding of mental health or trauma yeah. or anything at the time. Yeah. So it's a pretty good depiction of that, I think. Yeah, very. Part of that too goes into like, how realistic the film is. I mean, it's still touted as one of the most realistic war films to ever be made. I believe it. It's horrifying. Yeah, my stomach was turning a lot as we watched it. I was very surprised and honestly not expecting that because, you know, we're watching films in black and white from the 30s and I'm like expecting to just be like, okay, whatever. But it really, really impacted me. So Yeah, and uh, all the fight scenes, the choreography is brutal. I mean, it... I'm sure people got injured making the film. I don't know how they couldn't have. But, I mean, you're you're thinking in your mind, like, they're oh getting gosh. injured and, like, yeah. they're getting brutally killed. And, like, and, like, hitting so hard with, like, rifles and all these things. Like, the fist fights, the hand-to-hand -hand stuff is crazy. Yeah. So, at the end of every episode, um, we have a segment where we would like to thank the Academy for things relating to this film as the people who received awards thanked the Academy for their awards. Um, so I'll begin. Um, this week, I would like to thank the Academy for a very sympathetic and honest look at the horrors of war. It was just so refreshing to watch a film that wasn't glorifying war, describing everyone as heroes for brutally killing other humans. And just gave it like an honest look, again, back to the scene where they're all just sitting there by the river. They're eating a meal they haven't eaten in three days. They're like, why would we want to kill these other people? Like, I don't have anything against them. Why would I want to go so far as to kill them? So that is my first thanks. I would like to thank the Academy for a perspective into German life during one of the darkest periods in German history. As a descendant of German immigrants, I am grateful for that perspective. And I am proud of the good that has come out of German culture. And I am deeply sad. And obviously, it's there's huge amounts of darkness and tragedy intertwined. And those things have to coexist. And so I am thankful and uh, happy that that could be explored in an honest way. That's kind of exactly the same thing you just said, but it's worth saying again. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> this film was so intense. It's hard to be silly about. <laughs> um, I would also like to give an honest thanks uh, for men being scared and emotional in this film. Oh um, man. Yeah. Uh, it was just very refreshing to see people 
who in American society, like we were saying, like those people are considered heroes for, and obviously they are sacrificing a lot to go to war um, people today. We have a lot to be thankful for for those who do go to war when it's necessary for whatever reason. Um, but in this film, just the depictions of masculine emotion, them being afraid in the bunker, just very like nice to see, very refreshing. They were allowed to be regular humans. I would like to thank the Academy for causing me to have multiple outbursts during this film. I reacted very volatilely to it. It was a good choice in that sense. Strong emotions. Yeah, this wasn't a very lighthearted movie. It was not. <laughs> very deeply tragic. Very sad. If you want a good sad, have a watch of this film. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever were like, war and violence sounds super fun, may we give this a watch? Yeah. It'll definitely change your mind. Any other last thoughts about this film? Uh, if you're looking for insight into a perspective on World War One that is not American, I mean, technically is made by an American studio, but from a German point of view, this is a good way to do that. Watch this film. It is definitely one worth watching. Yeah, definitely. Of the three that we've watched so far, this was definitely my favorite, and I uh, would recommend it highly, especially if you like war films. If you like war films in general, this is a very, very good version of that. Yeah, shockingly different from Wings. <laughs> Another well, war film. Of, it basically answers all of my complaints about Wings, which is it's too happy. It glorifies war. It makes it look like these men are just heroes that everyone should aspire to. This one will definitely uh, dismantle all those assumptions about war. Join us next week uh, when we cover the fourth Academy Awards and the fourth Best Picture winner, Cimarron. Cimarron. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.